0: The Geopolitics and Empire podcast is joined by a returning guest, former congressional staff member, geopolitical analyst and author, Brandon Weickart. His latest book is Winning Space, How America Remains a Superpower, which we covered on our previous podcast. And his website is theweickartreport.com. It's been a while, Brandon. You've made the smart decision to flee to the sunshine state. How are things?
1: Uh, It's wonderful here. Thank you for asking. It's uh, it's really you can taste and smell the freedom, unlike up in D.C. or Chicago.
0: I thought you were going to say taste the the orange juice. I have that image. That too. Oranges in Florida.
1: (laughs) That too. We got we got a tree out in the back that we're we're cultivating right now an orange tree. So
0: there there you go. Um, So I I thought we'd start off with the with the big question. Uh, Everything you know that's on everyone's mind. And you, you've you been making some very interesting uh, predictions, namely that in 2022, we would be seeing some fireworks, which we are. Uh, right. And I wanted to read a few quotes from your book, sure. uh, which we discussed on the podcast last time. Quote, Putin must act within the next decade to decisively rejigger the European map to better favor his designs, namely to more easily defend Moscow and the Russian core that sits adjacent to Europe's borders. Either Putin makes a bold uh, play soon to move the strategic ball down the field, or he sees the initiative and therefore the future to his Western rivals, uh, end quote. So it seems, just like you said, he made that bold move. And let me just read one one more quote. Uh, Russian forces would first need to defeat the U.S. military station in Europe short of an all-out nuclear exchange. Russian forces would be unable to accomplish such a feat. Russian Forces could, however, potentially beat an American force that was deprived of its technological accruements by first de- debilitating the U.S. military in space, which is something that Russians have been strategizing about for years, end quote. So you go on to discuss in your book uh, a Russian space attack in 2022. We haven't seen that yet. Um, and also myself having spoken to Andrei Martyanov, I'm not quite sure I would agree with you that Russia... Uh, cannot defeat US or NATO conventionally in Europe. Maybe they can, maybe they can't, I'm not sure. But never, nevertheless, you do some absolutely astounding analysis and forecasting. Uh, you go on to say that such a cyber attack, or dare I say, cyber pandemic, could force Washington to negotiate with the Kremlin and once and for all, disabuse the West of its hegemonic inclination. So, what on earth is going on with Russia, the US, and EU uh, in Ukraine?
1: Uh, well, that, that's excellent. Thank you for quoting that. Uh, basically, Uh, what's going on is Russia has uh, a lot of natural resources. They have a leader, a leadership that is not keen on just being an appendage of the Western order. Uh, They want to be their own sort of, you know, Dugan says this all the time, Alexander Dugan, civilization state or civilization empire, um, which you know, I don't necessarily think they can get there, but this is, I think, what they're trying to do is to say, hey, America, we're you know, we're our own entity. We're not going to become just part of the European alliance. We're not going to let you regime change us. We're going to decide our future. And Putin is sort of that uh, vessel of resistance that has been building up among at least a sizable number of elites in Russia. That's why, by the way, I don't think he's going to be overthrown from within. This, there's this hope out there that he will be, but it's not. Um, and... And then meanwhile, the Americans and their European allies are looking at the situation going, you know, we really want to keep expanding the, the sphere of liberty, as we call it, uh, to include these former Soviet states, these former uh, entities that were once part of Russia's and then the Soviet Union's uh, natural security perimeter. And if anybody knows anything about Russian history, going back to the Mongol invasions, uh, the the Russians have always been obsessed with their territorial insecurity and convinced of their cultural superiority. And so it's this sort of very dangerous combination, schizophrenic view that Russian leaders tend to think we're the best, we're the biggest, we're going to be our own great power. But at the same time, they have these really hard to defend land borders. And one of the most indefensible borders was the post Cold War uh, border that Russia ended up getting with Europe. And so the Americans, I think, quite stupidly did not account for the fact that Russia is its own country with its own unique history. And just because the Soviets were overthrown didn't mean that they would become just this sort of cog in the Washington-Brussels machine in Europe. Uh, and, and They may have Russia under Yeltsin in particular probably was very open to being really part of that trading bloc and, and accepting democracy, but it didn't mean that Russia and the Russian leadership was going to just become pushovers. And so now the Russians are looking at this. They're going, we've got these natural resources. We've got other opportunities to do more trade and work with China, which is the second largest economy GDP. They're growing. They're a fellow authoritarian state that's also anti-American, anti-Western to some degree. So we may be able to form a a block of resistance to our East in order to push against the imperialistic West, as they see it. Um, But then at the same time, Russia also has this really bizarre Problem where they have these resources, they have the they're the largest country land wise. They're this really large entity, a singular entity. And uh, but they have declining population, at least among their native born. And so now they're looking at this. Putin is, and this has been going on since the fifties, uh, where the the Russians just aren't having enough children to have societal replacement. So what Putin's doing is rather than say I'm just going to give up and let the whole thing fall apart, he's saying I need to right now plug those strategic gaps in my border. And right now I can handle China through diplomacy, so I don't have to worry about that as much. I can push around Kazakhstan still, as we saw in January, where he went into Northern Kazakhstan with the uh, CSTO nations. Uh, But then he's worried going, but the Americans and their European allies to my West, they're the problem. They keep poking me, even when I think we have a deal. And And I'm certainly not gonna kowtow to them. So now he's got maybe this eight to 10 year period before Russia's population becomes so terminally declined that he can't militarily rejigger the European map to his liking. So he's looking at it now going, if I can get some change fundamentally to the map, In my near abroad, as they call it, I might not only be able to secure those those territorial buffer zones that Russian leaders have historically wanted to put between themselves and the Europeans, but he might also be able to restore on some level the former Russian Empire and the former Soviet Union without communism uh, by cleaving back those old uh, Soviet territories in Eastern Europe. And I think that's what's going on. And if he doesn't do it now in the next few years, He's in for a big problem because he won't have the military population to to go in and do it militarily, and he won't be able to do it diplomatically or economically at that point either. So it's make or break now, which is what I think the West doesn't get. And all these talk about, oh, he's going to collapse, he's going to end, oh, the war's over in 15 days, he he loses to the ragtag Ukrainians. Um, I don't know what they're smoking in Washington. But uh, and I'm by the way, I mean, I know a lot about Russia. I really liked Boris Yeltsin a lot. Um, I'm not a fan of Mr. Putin. I'm not a fan of, you know, the, 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 the what's going on in Ukraine. I do think that Russia has real grievances with the West going back 30 years. And I think we should acknowledge that. I don't think what they're doing is right. But I also know Russian military doctrine, and I also understand, I think, the situation in Moscow with Putin. They're not going to stop after 15 days. And the Ukrainians have done a heck of a job. But at the end of the day, it took almost a decade for the Taliban, which I think were probably far more talented insurgents, uh, to or excuse me, the Mujahideen, to overthrow the Soviet power with American help in Afghanistan. 15 days in Ukraine? Give me a break. This is much closer to Russia's military power and logistics supply chain anyway this isn't going to end anytime soon and it might not conventionally i don't think end in a victory for ukraine if there is a victory for ukraine there it's going to take years and it's going to be an insurgency and it's going to be bloody and it's not going to be pretty
0: a message from our sponsors the nomos app will help you survive COVID 1984 and the great reset nomos is a time bank that can be used by communities anywhere in the world you just need to talk people into using it For example, if you go to your barber for a 30-minute haircut, your barber receives 30 minutes in his time bank. He can then use that time to pay for an appointment with the doctor. I've spoken to the developer who is passionate about creating solutions for surviving and thriving in the apocalypse. Nomos is available in both English and Spanish. Hurry and visit nomos.net before they roll out the cashless society and put you in the algorithm ghetto. Also, if you need health insurance that covers you wherever you may roam, check out my friend James Guzman's Borderless Health Insurance. One of the great things about living internationally is saving money on health care, but private care overseas can be expensive. Go to borderlesshealthinsurance.com to watch a short presentation on expat and digital nomad healthcare and sign up for a free consultation to review your options. Geopolitics and Empire needs funding. You can leave a donation book a consultation, or become a member, which gets you access to my brief weekly commentary, a monthly newsletter of my thoughts, a private telegram, a monthly member's group call, and my second premium broadcast called Dissident Thinker, where I conduct interviews and provide solo analysis. Dissident Thinker is also available on Rockfin and for supporters on Locals. And yeah, that's... uh a lot of stuff you said there that that I uh, generally uh, agree with. I, I love your assessments, and you, you communicate it very well. And to get Thank your you. thought then on the current situation, and I've got a few scenarios where, you know, either I think one scenario would be that hopefully quickly diplomatically things, um, yeah, are, are solved, and but that would mean then you know making Ukraine neutral, not a NATO member, and basically you know making it neutral or either. Or people say Russia takes parts of eastern Ukraine, um, you know, basically giving up for the of the West and NATO and Brussels and Washington, giving up Ukraine. And that would kind of solve things for now. Um, that may not happen. So that's one scenario. Another scenario is this just this war conflict just goes on for a long, uh, long time at a low, low level. Right. Or that we can, you know, some of the stuff you talk about uh, uh, escalate uh, asymmetrically uh, or even escalate um to tactical, t- tactical nuclear warfare or, or, or other sorts of things. So where do you see us right now in the Ukraine conflict and uh, as well as the threat of escalation?
1: Yeah, so, so um, and I just talked with Seth Liebson about this in Arizona last night. The threat of escalation is more, significant now than probably since the Cuban Missile Crisis. Um, And the problem is for us today is whereas in the Cold War by the 1960s, particularly with Khrushchev as opposed to Stalin, there was sort of this understanding in russia which is that ultimately we're going to go push the americans as far as we can we'll even risk war if we have to nuclear war but we're not going to we're not going to trigger it we're going to we're going to go to that line the americans are going to meet us at that line we're going to stare down we're going to push and shove a little bit but at the end of the day our own internal stakeholders in the Politburo, in the you know in in the Soviet elite, we're going to keep the Russian from probably launching ballistic missiles at us, and the same thing with the Americans. At the end of the day, you always had the hawks, but for the most part, most of the political leadership, especially, we're not going to trigger nuclear war, at least not wittingly. So there were sort of these unsaid safeguards. And then, of course, by the 70s, you had all the, the detente and you had these new treaty agreements, which whether whether the Soviets ever really adhered to them, they did at least try to create a systematic way of Uh, cooling tensions down during a crisis, the red phone linking the Kremlin to the White House directly and things like that. Today, in the post-Cold War era, we are living in a time where, unfortunately, those internal and external safeguards, both in the United States and Russia, have both been stripped apart at the same time. Uh, And so now you have a situation, particularly in Russia, where you have a leader who very much like Xi Jinping in China has aggregated or coalesced as much power toward himself as possible. Not really since Stalin have we had a Russian leader. And I'm not saying he's Stalin, by the way, but not since Stalin have we had a Russian leader approximate any kind of individual control over the society the way that Mr. Putin does. And so while that me- makes it easier for Putin to enforce his control and sort of, you know, do his dictatorial or authoritarian measures that he wants to do, it also means that there's only one man who really matters in Russia when it comes to the question of escalation. And that's Vladimir Putin and what attitude he's in that day or what his perception of a given strategic situation is. And while Putin is a strategic thinker and he does have a lot of bad background in geopolitics both professionally and academically he's very skilled um he's not you know he's not infallible And he's certainly in a situation in Russia where, like I said before, he's got a declining population. He's got an economy that's very fragile. His political situation is tenuous there, which is why he's becoming so increasingly authoritarian. He's having to deal with the concern that, hey, what if one of my inner guys actually tries to put a bullet in my head? I don't think that's going to be the case. But Putin is is a Siloviki. He's a former KGB guy. He's been around the block. He can't help but to think this, especially as the Western pressure on him mounts as the media war mounts. So the question is escalation. If it's only up to him on the Russian side, and he wants to win, he's put himself in a position, this is why I say he's not infallible, because he's really not left himself in out with this Ukraine thing. He's bitten off more than he can chew. So he's gonna keep going until he refashions the situation to his liking in Ukraine. And if the Americans and NATO and the Ukrainians are in the way, or the Poles are in the way, if need be, he will go all the way up at least to tactical non-strategic nuclear weapons, I believe. And so we need to be very cognizant of this in the West, because on our side, yes, we still have sort of the, the guardrails, at least on paper, that would prevent a nuclear escalation from us. But you look at the leadership right now, and you look at particularly the Biden administration, which is simultaneously, um, shall we say, absent-minded or um, uh, out of touch. Uh, and at the same time, they are clearly very russophobic And so you know, you have a very dangerous condition in Washington where you have strategic ambivalence and, oh dear, sorry, uh, where you have uh, strategic ambivalence. And then you couple that with uh, sort of this, this obsession with, first of all, standing up to Russia. And let's face it, a lot of these people in the Democratic Party really believe Donald Trump was a Russian spy, which he was not, but they think that, and this is about getting revenge on Putin for overturning, you know, Hillary Clinton's loss in 2016. Uh, So there's some of that, there's political, you know, a one-upsmanship there, revenge. And then you also have a lot of people who are committed deeply to not just this idea of the democratic or liberal idea of democracy and human rights being spread, but specifically who are extremely obsessed with ensuring that Europe remains. That sort of perfect image of a liberal postmodern utopia and Russia directly threatens that by its mere existence in their eyes. So that's on our side, the threat of escalation. So you've got those two forces jockeying right now in a very confined space, a very emotional Highly charged atmosphere. And you've got Russia moving tactical nukes by the, you know, by the bushel full into the Kaliningrad, which is that space of territory between uh, Poland and Germany that the Russians held on to after the Cold War ended. Um, this is a very dangerous condition. And Putin himself has openly brought up the idea of threatening escalation against the Americans and NATO with tactical nuclear weapons at the very least. So we're in a very dangerous position. The Americans, I think, are very tone deaf about what's going on, which is why I really want to see a restoration of those Minsk, Minsk II agreements that would neutralize Ukraine peacefully uh, and basically give the Zelensky government a real chance at standing up on their own away from. From the eastern ukrainian side and let the russians have their pound of flesh and then we could all move on in relative peace but right now this is extremely risky and very dangerous and i would say probably much more so dangerous than even during the cuban missile crisis when at the end of the day you had two leaders who were not only plugged in but who were cognizant and wise enough to be able to tell their advisors you know stufu we're going to take it from here and we're going to make a deal. And unfortunately, I don't know if we are there yet with Putin and Biden. And I don't know if sort of um, institute or constitutionally uh, they can um, they can do this as individuals because their personalities are very different.
0: I would agree with you that it's more dangerous today. We do not have a person like JFK to defuse tensions. And just uh, this week, I saw a CNN clip of an American general talking about Kaliningrad saying that's a lovely uh, piece of real estate it would be a shame if something happened to it so that just goes to what you're <laughs> yeah what, what you're saying yeah. and uh, any thought um you know before i ask you about some other topics just to get your thought then on apart from the tactical nooks which you mentioned just um you know, we're starting to see a lot of cyber pandemic stuff going on banks, you know, in Canada going down, you know, banks all over the place being hacked government. I think Israel's uh, Israel just suffered a huge DDoS attack, uh, mm-hmm. Israeli government websites just all across the board. We're seeing a higher frequency of, you know, all kinds of uh, infrastructure in, in all kinds of countries being hit. Um, so what are your thoughts then on on? If Because if, you made the prediction, if we'll see this year or next year, like right. any kind of space war or yeah. um, apart from space wars, you know, cyber war. I, I recently yeah. had on a guest physicist, uh, Steve Su, who was saying that a space yeah. war is probably not very likely because it would create this chain reaction that would like destroy all of you know, all like of the, satellite the stuff. syndrome. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, what are your thoughts there?
1: So my thought, well, first of all, let me just say my editor, when I sent the first manuscript, so the, the, the final manuscript before they did anything with it was, I think sent beginning December 2019, and the two complaints. They loved the book, obviously. They published it. The two complaints the editor had, he said, "Shouldn't you make the opening space Pearl Harbor war game about China, not Russia?" Because that, I go, "No, no." I go, "I agree, China is the longer term threat here, but you got to watch Russia because of these issues." And so we went back and forth on that. And then the second thing they said was, "You know, well, 2022 is a pretty close, to, you know, year to where we are now. What happens if it's not accurate?" I said, "That's fine." I said, "I, I, I do think though, we." are, that is the most likely time when everything sort of hits. I am hoping to be wrong, by the way. I keep telling people I am happy. I'm the guy who writes this in the hopes that I'm wrong and I can take it. That's fine because then we can all live our lives happily. Um, the, the, the problem is, is when we're talking asymmetrical escalation, which is what we're talking now. This is not the Cold War where we went to DEFCON 1 and the Soviets did the same thing. We put NATO on alert, Warsaw Pact went on alert. You know, it was sort of tit for tat, very predictable. And that kind of in itself created stability, the balance of terror. We had enough nukes to wipe them out. They had enough nukes to wipe us out and it kept us in check. But for the last 30 years, The Russians and Chinese in particular have worked on building up these unconventional asymmetrical areas of supremacy over the Americans. So on paper, yes, we have a military that outmatches the Russians and Chinese conventionally. But then when you look at the unconventional, uh, even something non-kinetic like the the public diplomacy war or the the sort of that propaganda war that's being waged in the cyberspace arena uh, in the across the airwaves, fake news. The Russians have us beat, for the most part, until very recently. The Chinese are very good at it as well. Um, You look at the cyber domain, and the Americans invented the Internet, right? DARPA, this is an American military invention uh, that became, you know, civilianized. Um, But the Russians have really, really gotten good at perfecting their cyber warfare to such a point that they are now at least near equals to us there, much more so than in the conventional domain. And so when we talk about cyber escalation, what you're talking about with these banks and whatnot, uh, even though they don't aren't necessarily linked directly back to the Russian government, the way this tends to work is the Russian government has cutouts. They have these, these sort of shell companies, if you will, of hackers that are criminals acting independently for black market purposes, financial purposes, but in fact, they're probing testing, uh, you know, uh, trying to figure out what the weak points are in Western uh, infrastructure in order to totally debilitate at a given notice and to harass and harry and make crazy Western societies at home so that the Westerners ability to project power into Europe to assist the Ukrainians more directly to threaten Russia more directly is stunted and stymied. And what's going on right now is the shadow war. It's a shadow war in in the electronic space, and uh, you know that to me is very dangerous because there are no rules there. It's the wild west, uh, and we don't know you know these unintended consequences. For instance, when we uh, you know wink and nod when somebody uh, launched the Stuxnet virus uh, uh, into Iran, it was a brilliant stroke of you know it was a stroke of brilliance, and, and that's that really was just as a tech as a geotech guy that got me going. But what we learned about six months later was the Stuxnet virus that went after those industrial switches in the Iranian centrifuges. Well, guess what? Those centrifuges, those industrial uh, switches were built by Siemens, the German tech firm. And it turned out that the Stuxnet went in, made those systems overload, destroyed the Iranian nuclear uh, centrifuge program, but... That Stuxnet, once it was released into the wild, ended up propagating. And now it's still out there, by the way. And now any any, uh, industrial-grade switch, which is used by a lot of companies and a lot of important things that we take for granted today, uh, things that were built by Siemens, Now all of those systems are conceivably under threat from this in the wild, out of control, uh, somewhat dormant for now, uh, Stuxnet virus. So when we talk about cyber war, we we talk about escalation and sort of, uh, you know, non-linear escalation there, which is really where we're gonna see that there and in space. Uh, The problem is there were unintended consequences, and the Russians may not even set out to totally debilitate the American system. They may just be seeking to target specific systems, but then everything's interconnected and everything propagates and spreads. And before long, it's complete shutdown for us. And then we've got bigger problems. So that's on the cyber side. And so I think what you're seeing is definitely the war is already being fought over Ukraine in cyberspace, in our backyards. And the, and the the consequences could be very deadly, unintended consequences could be very deadly for us. And when we talk about space, there's something similar, the unintended consequence. So you had the physicist on, and he's talking about... the, the, you know, if we start destroying satellites or they start destroying our satellites and then we retaliate in kind, it's going to generate a cluster of debris that will never stop orbiting the earth and will basically become like little bullets that could spread, spread, spread and damage or destroy every satellite system in orbit over time. This is known as the Kessler syndrome, but the problem is the Russians Clearly, the way they've been uh, p- placing these co-orbital satellites and testing anti-satellite missiles for the last decade, the Russians don't seem to quite be as cowed by the fear of unintended consequences as even the Americans are. I, as you know, I consult with the Pentagon and uh, the Space Force. I was talking to a couple of senior guys from the 114th uh, Space Wing in Peterson, Colorado, and what they were telling me is they, you know, they they were like, you know, Brandon, your your presentation on co-orbital satellites and, and anti-satellite warfare, very good stuff, really cool, but you have no idea what I can do on a given day to the Russian or Chinese. I said, I said, okay. I said, well, without getting into detail here, um, I'm taking the, the way you reacted to my talk as you may have those capabilities. But you don't have confidence that you'll be given a timely enough order to use them in a way that would prevent the kind of unintended consequences I'm talking. And they always shut their mouths and then they were sort of nodding. And they were like, well, that is a problem is the national command authority doesn't understand the tools they're being given, so we have to sit down and wait. And waiting is death. you know? So the problem that I have with with what the physicist says, with the skepticism is, um the Russians have already demonstrated a willingness to test very dangerous tests anti-satellite weapons very near our systems and one more thing example november 12th of 2021 going into the thanksgiving holiday here in the united states uh the the joint chiefs of staff and the 17 u.s intel chiefs went to the nato uh headquarters and gave a very public briefing where they said russia is going to try to attack in the next you know few months ukraine be ready and the Russians were massing uh, troops at that time, uh, and people were the Russians were denying it, but everybody knew pretty much the Russians were trying to do something. And when the when the U.S. intel and military chief said this publicly, and it went to the media, within twelve hours, the Russians launched an anti-satellite weapon that destroyed a derelict Soviet satellite in orbit that satellite was very near the orbit of the International Space Station, which is America's only manned facility in low Earth orbit. It is our only base, if you will, even though it's a scientific mission, it's our only kind of point of influence where we can put human beings, American human beings, in orbit at, for any given time. And that the debris generated from that Russian anti satellite test in November of 21, uh, basically, got so close to the orbital plane of the ISS that the astronauts on board had to take shelter in the escape vehicle and had to prepare to do an emergency evacuation of the station because the station was within 30 minutes of basically being ripped to pieces by the Kessler syndrome, by the debris generated from that strike. And at the time, within 72 hours, elements of the Pentagon asked me to fly up to DC because I wrote an article in the Asia Times in which I said, hey, that was not a random test. That was not a pre-scheduled thing that had been on the books for months. And it was a mistake by the Russians. That was intended as a signal of deterrence to the Americans. If you mess with our pending invasion of Ukraine, we will screw with you so bigly in the orbit that your forces will be rendered deaf, dumb, and blind. And we don't really care about the consequences. And I was flown up. I talked to the to the, the DOD, to members of the Air Force about this. And all but one of the Air Force leaders basically called me an idiot, said that they collected uh, wisdom of the U.S. intelligence community uh, was that I was wrong and this was a random thing. Don't don't read too much into it. And of course, I had to counter with just like you guys were saying there were WMDs in Iraq, You know that, that sort of thing. So my point here is um, my point here is, is that we are not reading the Russian signals very well. And while there, there is real concern to be had about the cost of escalation and the, the unintended consequences of escalation in cyber and space, it is likely, I think, given how desperate Mr. Putin is to have a win, that he doesn't care. And that this is for him, Peter Zion talks about this, the last war of Russia, probably for a while at least. And for Putin, he's old. He's very healthy. No matter how much judo he plays, though, he is old and he's not going to be here much longer because of natural causes, 10, 15 years and he doesn't really have a deep bench of leaders yet i know mark Galati called me an idiot when i said this in 2018 but somebody name for me a potential successor that could be as strong and effective as he can and so with that, having said that for putin this is it this is it and he's going to go for broke cuz this is his whole legacy this is peter the great apocryphally on the deathbed dying of bladder cancer commanding his successor go forth and conquer the world in my name and so for for putin this is it and he will risk Complete devastation in space. And when you know, when the physicist you talked to said the Russians wouldn't want to do it because it would deprive them as well and everyone else of access to space potentially, the Russians don't rely on space as we do. The Russians don't care. And the Russians have clearly shown a vindictive streak when they're dealing with civilian populations, whether it be in Grozny, whether it be in Aleppo, whether it be in uh, 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 Kharkiv, where maybe the Russians are just, the leadership is gonna order a very nasty strike to send a message, we are the alpha males and we are gonna do whatever we have to to make sure we get what we want. And this is my concern. And when we think that Putin is this, you know, completely rational actor we we have to understand putin is operating in a different system than we are he's got different inputs he's got different strategies he's got a different culture and history he's coming from so for him what what may seem irrational to us is actually quite rational to a Russian strongman who is obsessed with the superiority of his culture and upset or angered uh, or con- or convinced of the territorial insecurity of the Russian territory, and so that's what you're dealing with. And that's why we really need to be worried about um, sort of nonlinear, asymmetrical escalation. <clears throat>
0: And it'll take a lot more than Judo to take down the Grim Reaper. I That's, right. That's um, right. So moving to another sphere, uh, but equally as important, uh, I think, the dollar, the U.S. dollar, right. the dollar world reserve. Um, many of us have been talking about this for more than a decade, yeah. and we're starting to see it now. Um We're seeing now the Saudis starting to move away from from the Benjamins to the Renminbi's. And you tweeted this afternoon, quote, China has to be looking at what the USA-Western alliance did to Russia's reserves, going, why the hell are we still holding treasuries? Uh, (laughs) I expect this not to last for long now that the West has completely overplayed its hand here. Um, We just killed the king dollar because of Ukraine, uh, end quote. And, you know, by all measures, it seems the dollar reserve is on its way out. Maybe we'll get a IMF, SDR, as some like James Rickards talk about, yep. uh, maybe, maybe it just becomes another currency among yep. uh, you know, a basket of top competing currencies. Or you yep. know, maybe, maybe we get gold and commodities somehow thrown into the mix. What are your thoughts on the U.S. dollar r- reserve status and then what what's, uh, it, it's competing against?
1: Yeah. So the bottom line is um, the, the Americans are going to look back in probably 10 to 15 years going, wow, we really had a good thing when the world was okay even the chinese and the russians our enemies were okay with having the dollar as the reserve currency as the because it really did give us not only prestige which is you know good for a country to have i don't care what any postmodern liberal says it's good to have prestige but also it did give us a lot of access and capabilities that other countries just don't get to enjoy um now it's true over the last 10 15 20 years the dollar has been joined by other currencies, obviously not as strong, not as, you know, but the other currencies have started to come online to sort of act as another alternative, possibly. I uh, remember in the 2000s, uh, was it Mark Leonard and, and the Eurocrats were all talking about how the Euro was going to replace the dollar. And for a little bit, it looked like it might, might be challenger Of course, it wasn't. Um, but the, the bottom line is we have had a slow bubbling up of, countries kind of passively looking into the prospect of ultimately replacing the dollar, a new Bretton Woods that would replace the dollar. Um, With what we've done with 30 years of sanctions, whether it be sanctions on Iran, which, by the way, you know, I'm I'm very uh, hawkish on Iran, um, but I I'm very skeptical of of sanctions. Um, the way we've used them, we they, we've used them. They're they're really surgical instruments that we've turned into these blunt force objects with a lot of again unintended consequences. And so, um, whether it's Iran, a rogue state like that, or it is um, a great power, a fellow great power like Russia or China, nuclear armed powers, no less. Um, the, the the countries of the world are looking around going, if the Americans can do what they've done to Russia in two weeks, we did this in two weeks. We basically sent them back 30 years uh, economically, at least temporarily, um, to w- where they were in the mid-90s. Um, in two weeks, 15 days, uh, wh- what could the Americans choose to do? And now you see Jake Sullivan flying to Rome, meeting with the Chinese foreign minister, essentially implying that, you know, China, you know if finger wagging, you know, Beijing, if you try to help Moscow out, uh, we're going to do to you what, what we did to Moscow. Um, the, the Chinese have to be sitting there going, okay, we'll grin and bear it for the short term, but expect things to change now because when we're ready to take Taiwan, Uh, We are not going to have that as a weak spot. And and they are going to plan to take Taiwan uh, soon, I think, in the next at least five to seven years, I think probably closer to three to five. But I'm on the outlier of that one. But those countries were not considered rogue states. So like in the 90s and early 2000s, when we sanctioned, you know, Saddam's Iraq, when we sanctioned Venezuela, when we sanctioned Cuba, we sanctioned Iran, North Korea, those were considered rogue regimes. We use that term. Which implied there was a difference between normal regimes, right? Even fellow even you know autocratic ones like China or Russia, um, and so Russia and China were fine to rely some degree on the dollar, but now that we have Ukraine and we see a country like Russia, which did get into the, you know, the, the civilized world that was accepted after the Cold War. It became a trading partner, it became part kind of of the U.S. trading system. Uh, you know, it was considered a normal country Or you see China, which is the second largest economy, GDP and rising, largest economy, PPP. Uh, you, you see China and they are uh, considered, uh, you know, par- a, a normal trade partner. They were worked into the you know most favored trade nation. So that d- implied a degree of normalcy that was conferred upon them that they were just like the Americans or the British just bigger um now you see the Americans treating these most favored countries normal countries supposedly like their Iran Saddam's Iraq Venezuela Cuba or North Korea and Beijing especially Beijing is powerful enough i think where they can say we're not going to take that we're not going to let that be and now they're looking at Russia and we've pushed Russia so far out of the western orbit remember Vladimir Putin in 1999 wanted, and I know it sounds laughable, and maybe it was a Hail Mary, but Vladimir Putin did not start out as anti-American. Vladimir Putin wanted to join NATO. Now, maybe he wanted to do that to destroy NATO from within. And I always thought it would have been better to sort of slowly disband NATO and replace it with the OSCE. Um, But the point is, is that Putin of all people was saying, hey, let us join, you know, and we can work together right and so clearly there was in the beginning this idea in russia that we'll work with america and we'll join the institutions and be treated as equals but clearly that is not how at least the neoliberal neoconservative democratic globalist elite who purport to reign over us from washington and brussels that is clearly not how they think and they have no problem pushing russia out of our orbit completely not realizing that they're just going to get sucked up into the chinese orbit and which is precisely do, which is precisely what's happening. And now we have a real threat of not just a Eurasian access of autocrats arising, an anti-American one at that, but now possibly an anti-American Eurasian access of autocrats plus China's massive economy, plus or times a Russia's abundant natural resources, fortuitous geography linking the two together, I mean, this is a nightmare scenario. And it's all because of our short-sighted policies, which I think is a reflection of bad elites, disconnected elites in America. I also think it's a reflection of our two and four-year election cycle, which can be advantageous at times for changing quickly. But in terms of crafting sensible, logical strategies, not always so. And so for 30 years, The real question we should be asking ourselves when it comes to Russia, at least, uh, is the Peter Kinrati question, who lost Russia? It takes two to tango. We can be angry and mad at Vlad all we want, and we should be because he he's committing war crimes and it's disgusting what he's doing. But at the same time, it took two to get us here. And now he's falling, Vlad is, hard and fast for Xi Jinping. And the only person who's going to win, the only group that wins from Russo-American fighting over Europe and Ukraine is China. And that is scary.
0: You wrote, uh, you know, just quickly on China, you wrote something that uh, you said China is not opposed to anything that Russia is doing. They want this thing to bleed on that Beijing very badly wants to see Moscow and Washington duke it out uh, forever in Ukraine and quote. And, you know, from my view, that's the same approach America had with the allies and Germans and Russians in World yes. War um, and as well, you also recently, I think in January on your website, you posted an, an article discussing an earth, uh, a huge earthquake that was uh, in China that may have been under, an underground nuclear test. And you were saying that, you know, maybe China um, was is, is thinking of taking, you know, maybe they will let Russia and the West bleed, bleed themselves. And then maybe China could target uh, Russia at some future point. Um, you know, in ge- geopolitics, I think you have to think of all of these crazy scenarios. We yeah. know at one point the U.S., had, I think, uh, a war plan to take out uh, Britain during World War yeah, II. So, Canada. Uh, yeah. Yeah. And so, I mean, what are your thoughts then um, uh, on China? and? Uh,
1: so what we have to understand is in the West, we've been blessed not only by geography, uh, particularly the United States, but we've, we've also been blessed by having great powers that are of the same stock the same sort of ideas, the same general culture and civilizational and religious and political preferences, generally speaking. And so our alliances get to be a little bit tighter knit interoperable uh, because of shared cultural values for the most part. In Eurasia, particularly that space between, you know, near China and Russia, um, you've got like five to seven, at least different groups all vying historically for dominance in that sort of Central Asia, Southern Asia, you know, Asia, quasi-European space uh, where Russia is. And so when when they start cooperating, as they are, um, first of all, it's not going to look like Western cooperation. Um, you are having, shockingly, a degree of ideological coordination between the, on, the, on the grounds of shared autocracy between China and Russia in particular, but that's still growing. When you look at China, Russia, Iran, North Korea, and some of these other countries that are aligning with them, um, they do everything based on realpolitik, because they have to, because they don't have that sort of geopolitical or geographical blessing that they can take the time and go, well, we're going to only support shared values, or we're only going to support, they don't have that capability, They can't do it. They've got to either fight each other for control, or band together, share resources and fight a bigger threat, which happens to be us right now. Um, And so when China and Russia start playing footsie with one another, maybe even get engaged to one another, and maybe even have a shotgun wedding, if things keep going on with America the way they are, they're still going to be Cat fights between the two of them. There's still going to be Moscow and Beijing looking over at each other saying, I'm the number one partner. No, I'm the number one partner. And so I think that I wrote this in the Asia Times uh, in January when Putin invaded Kazakhstan, Northern Kazakhstan with CSTO. Um, I wrote, and my colleague, David Goldman, who's technically my, my boss and editor at the Asia Times, a friend of mine, uh, you know, he and I disagreed on this to some degree. Uh, you know, his thought was, no, China welcomed Russia's intervention there because the Americans were trying to start things behind the scenes that would have made Kazakhstan possibly more amenable to the West. Um I was thinking that's certainly a possibility, as you say, we have to entertain every quote unquote crazy geopolitical theory. Um, But I was thinking at the time, and I still am of the mind, that given the fact that you've got a very different kind of alliance forming between Russia and China that is much more realpolitik than it is postmodern, um, Russia has long viewed Kazakhstan and Central Asia as its backyard. And at the time, for the last decade at least, China's Belt and Road Initiative has been you know, pumping money and you know this because, if you're, you know, with your, your, your professional background, um, has been pumping money into Kazakhstan and the Central Asian states to create a trade bridge uh, through that region into Africa, into the Middle East and into Europe beyond. Well, Russia doesn't like that. that's their backyard. And so this was one of the reasons, by the way, why Russia was desperate to create the Eurasian Economic Union in 2011, 2012. And Ukraine was going to be sort of the breadbasket of that. And of course, that got upended. Um, This is why they're raging right now in Putin's inner circle. But the point is, is that between that potential earthquake in China, which I actually think was a Chinese nuclear blast, test blast, and the Russian invasion of Kazakhstan, I think the two powers were signaling to each other behind the scenes. We'll work together. We don't like the Americans, we don't like what Europe's doing, but we're not going to, you know, be pushed around by I, by you. The other side is saying the same thing. And so my concern is that uh, or maybe my hope is that there are still these historical cleavages that if we just had the right amount of leadership or the right kind of leadership, not tainted by that sort of Harvard Yale you know georgetown you know thought complex uh the richard haas thinking uh if we had the right kind of leadership in washington that they would recognize that even now with all the shared cooperation there's still a chance To divide the chinese from the russians if we play the hand that we have better and we're not doing that and so all of those cleavages go sort of below the the radar unnoticed china detonates maybe a nuke underground to send a signal to the russians don't go much farther than northern kazakhstan the russians go into northern kazakhstan to say to china you're welcome to do business here so long as we get a cut of the action and you recognize this is our turf and so but that requires the right kind of leadership interestingly and it was very funny uh, Donald Trump, former President Trump in Mar a Lago, just across Alligator Alley from me here. Uh, he made the comment to one of the press people last week that, you know, if it were me, if I were president, and it's funny, but I think he was kind of being serious, but it shows you, you know, an interesting thought process. I would take our big, beautiful F 22 Raptors and paint uh, Chinese flags on the side and then bomb the Russian positions. And and, and that way, the, the Russians will blame the Chinese and, and, and they'll fight each other. Now, obviously, it's jokey. He might have been serious. I don't know. I, I hope not. Uh, but, but the theory underpinning it or the assumption underpinning it was why should America get directly involved in a fight against nuclear-armed Russia when I'm sure there's a way we could get the two Russians and Chinese powers who have a longer history of disliking one another to maybe start fighting each other, giving us a reprieve and letting us take a break and focus on rebuilding America's comprehensive national power by rebuilding our infrastructure, rehabilitating our economy, rehabbing our educational system, which is a disaster. Um, So my whole point with that is We need to recognize opportunity and we need to be willing to look at things that we think might be, oh, that's just an earthquake or, oh, that was just the Russians being the Russians. Maybe there's more to it and maybe there's something we can do to benefit ourselves without getting embroiled in another Cuban missile crisis that could actually turn into World War III. So.
0: So we've covered Russia and China, and I thought maybe just uh, to end, we can touch on uh, Iran. um, uh, You can perhaps whet our uh, appetites. I think you've got a new book coming out titled The Shadow War, Iran's Quest for Supremacy. Uh, Recently, we saw Iranian missiles hit a U.S. base. in Iraq and so maybe if we, get, if we can get your thought on on that missile uh, attack and then as well as um, just some thoughts on, on Iran and I know when the book comes out I'll have you on again to talk I appreciate about, talk that all about the book but just uh, any any less thoughts than regarding uh, what's going on with Iran.
1: Well, yeah. And basically, the genesis of that book came out of my first book, Winning Space, because I had so much research material, because I have a chapter in there about Iran's space program and their potential space threat and how that plays into their ballistic missile program. I said to my editor, I said, you know, I've got so much research and, you know, my part of my background professionally was analyzing the Middle East. So I, I know it. I'm not, I'm not an expert, but I, I know it. Um, And I have a lot of colleagues still in government and people in 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 the policy world who were able to contribute sort of research inputs for me. Uh, And I said to them, I said, "Look, we got to write a book on this. We've got, and and no one's talking about it the way that I want to talk about it." Um, And so the bottom line is. Many people, particularly my my colleagues on the new right, uh, really think we can do a deal with Iran, and I think that is a a very bad idea. Uh, partly because the Iranian leadership is mired in um, an ideology, a very specific brand of Islamist ideology that really makes it difficult for them to actually negotiate. Now, they may get a deal, but they're not really negotiating. They're more like telling you what they're going to do. And so that's not negotiating, first of all. Second of all, they can't give up their aspirations, not only for the nuclear bomb, but they can't give up their aspirations for regional supremacy. And this goes because this goes back to their history. Uh, Iran is predominantly ethnically Persian. Which is a minority group in the wider middle east or the greater middle east and then there are also shiites and of course within the shia faith you have you know all these subdivisions but basically they're also they're shiite muslim which are a minority group relatively speaking compared to sunni muslim and so the sunnis don't like the shiites shiites don't like the sunnis and what i'm saying in the book is there are certain limitations to a deal and we can't give away the store to just say we get a deal and here's why we can't just get a deal Um, Because of the technology the, the, the Iranians are developing and the tactics, they're marrying that technology to, And the alliances they're forming now with China and Russia, it means that we now have an entirely new game in the Middle East. And that new game is one of supremacy. The Americans since 1945 pretty much have enjoyed dominance there. But let's face it, since the stupid invasion of Iraq, we we 've been bleeding our influence there as that 's left open a gaping hole for not only Iranian power to fill but now also for China and Russia through Iran to fill and so when we 're thinking great power politics, set aside the issue of whether we can trust Iran because of their ideology or not or because they have the bomb, we have to now think about what is China and Russia going to do, and how are they going to box us out of the middle east um, and so in the book, I talk about this is that um for instance, I don't talk about this part, because this happened last week. But when I looked at that strike in Erbil, uh, uh, Erbil, rather, uh, Iraq, which is basically Kurdistan, uh, those missiles fired from Iran that landed right in front of the US consulate. um, I looked at the wider strategic situation. And I, I assessed and I said this on Twitter, I haven't written an article really yet about it. But I assessed that, you know, Iran is very close with Russia. In fact, they're basically a colony of both Russia and China now. Um, Russia really needs America to be distracted from Europe and Ukraine. Um, Russia is sort of the arbiter. We're really relying on Russia to help negotiate or bring along the Iranians to negotiate the Biden nuclear deal that he wants to do uh, with Iran. I really think that the Russians pushed Iran to do the strike to force us to be distracted. I also think the Iranians wanted to do it because this is classic Iranian negotiating style. Um, In order to get the deal with, in this case, a conventionally stronger America than the Iranian military, the Iranians act batty crazy, so that they scare the Americans so much that the Americans go, okay, 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 well, you know, whatever you want, we'll give you because we don't really care. And in the meanwhile, you've got China in the background who all they want is the oil and the natural gas. And they don't really care about anything else. They need that energy from the Middle East much more so than we do. And so they want us out because they're worried that we're going to use the Middle East to blockade them from that energy. So if we're pushed out and Iran becomes the dominant power, hey, hey, it's a, it's a, it's a payday for Iran, uh, for, uh, for China. Same time, Uh, China is now looking at selling ballistic missile technology to Saudi Arabia. Saudi Arabia, of course, was content to rely on the American security guarantee until really the last eight years when Obama took over and kind of killed it. And then now Biden is reinforcing that notion of killing the security guarantee. Um, So the Saudis now have to take matters into their own hands because they're Sunni Muslim They do not want to live in a a region dominated by Shiite Persian Muslim, Uh, the the Saudi Arabians, they're they're Arabs as well. So there's an ethnic thing going on there. Um, And so now you've got where it looks like under Mohammed bin Salman, uh, Saudi Arabia is going to start a nuclear breakout program of their own with Chinese help. So China's both back, backing the Iranians and the Saudis to balance them off one another, push the Americans out because the Saudis don't trust us anymore, keep the Israelis isolated because they're considered an American colony, which they're not, but they're considered that by many foreign regimes. Uh, and then they're gonna, the Chinese and Russians are going to split the, the proceeds of the Middle East, at America's expense. So any deal that we do with Iran, irrespective of nukes, you throw in the nuke situation, and now you've got an apocalyptic scenario. But irrespective of nukes, we can't do a deal with Iran. We can't let that regime in particular, which is married to Russian and Chinese power, we cannot let that regime have any shot at dominance or supremacy, precisely because it will end the era of American dominance in that critical region. And lastly, while it's true, we know we don't really get the majority of our oil from the region, we get it from other places, more stable places. The fact of the matter is that our rivals and our European allies and our Japanese allies get most of their oil from the Middle East, the Near East. And so by that that virtue alone, we as a global superpower, or at least we pretend to be, should want to be the dominant power in that region to ensure that we get to dictate who has access to what in a crisis and not our enemies. And so that's that's the real reason I fear Iranian supremacy. The Iranian regime scares the heck out of me because of those ideological factors and also because of their history of supporting really nasty terrorism that if they had nukes or they had an electromagnetic pulse weapon, might end up, you know, going non-linear, unconventional, asymmetrical escalation against America or Israel or Europe uh, in ways that we don't foresee and that we think are fanciful, but the Iranians think are totally logical. And so, you know, this is a very, very scary time to try to be doing a deal. We shouldn't be doing it. Um, And we need to be on the lookout for the possibility of losing the Middle East and the implications that has for American grand strategy and our geoeconomic power, which really, I think, is the most important aspect of a nation's power, geoeconomics.
0: With China uh, is portending in Saudi Arabia and Iran reminds me a little bit of what the U.S. did um, in the 80s with uh, Iran and Iraq. Um, I have
1: that, by the way, I have a whole section comparing that in my new book. There's an entire chapter. It's called Saddam versus Khomeini. And I get into the history of what was going on. And then I segue at the end of that chapter and sort of compare. Well, this is what China's doing. By the way, China is doing what we used to do in the 40s and the 50s in the Middle East, where we sort of had that hands off approach. We'd had covert action. But basically, we we'd stay out of the day to day. And then we would sort of let, let, the, let our people on the ground deal with it. Um, the British were very good about that, right? They would let the, the multiple competing sides, they'd pit them against each other and balance them and they'd reap the ultimate reward because the locals were so busy fighting each other, the Brits were able to take what they wanted. Um, it's too bad we don't, I'm not saying we should be colonizers, I don't believe in that, but in terms of keeping the trade open and, and favorable to the West with oil and natural gas... It's too bad that we don't have that strategy anymore. We have this sort of quasi-imperialistic, human rights-based foreign policy that just is completely impractical. In the book, I blame Jimmy Carter, uh, as everybody should, for many things. Um, but you know that that's that's where we are, and, and it's a real tragedy because we're going to lose the Middle East. And we're going to lose much of Eurasia, I think, in the next decade, whether it's over this issue, the king dollar issue, or even, God forbid, a world war with Russia and or China.
0: Any final thought or uh, prediction for us?
1: Um, I know that the analysts are saying, hey, oil's coming down soon. Don't worry about it. Just like they were saying inflation was transitory. Um, my big fear is our economic power. Um, it is the American middle class that traditionally is the backbone of our economy. And it is the American middle class that is being just slaughtered right now by the inflation and the uh, the, the oil prices. I spoke to a, uh, an analyst with a major commodities house uh, over the weekend uh, who does West Texas Futures. And he um, he was telling me that his firm really thinks we're going to hit two hundred dollar barrel per uh, barrels a day um, in by May June, and I said, "That's that's recession. I mean, we're not talking recession territory. That's that's a recession because there's already very difficult times for American middle class. If we get to two hundred dollars a barrel uh, per, per barrel, that's recession." He goes, "Oh, he goes, yeah, no, that's that's it." And he goes, "And I think that's that's also major political upheaval." We're talking throughout the world, not just in America. I mean, big, big upheaval. And then you throw in, you know, recently I was talking with um, the Institute for Agriculture, I think is what it was called, in England. They quoted me effusively last month, in which I warned before it happened, the spike in grain prices because of Ukraine. And I think over the next 12 to 18 months, we're going to see a really significant Issue with food uh, availability and affordability because of the fact that Ukraine feeds 100 million people, mostly in North Africa and Africa and the Middle East. uh, And they're not going to be able to feed those people because harvest time is coming in another month, three weeks, and they're all busy in Ukraine fighting and dying. So, um, my big closing thought is the world that we were used to since 1991 is over. COVID killed. That world put the final nail in that coffin. We did a good job of killing it on our own over the last 30 years. Um, And now whatever's happening now is the birth of a newer world that is a lot messier, that is a lot more expensive. That probably is not going to have as much opportunity. That is probably going to be much more difficult for ordinary people to live and survive and thrive in. I'm not seeing a roaring 20s coming our way. I'm seeing maybe not the depression, but certainly a very tough eight to 10 years ahead of us. And I hope I'm wrong, but certainly in the near term, it's going to be ugly because of these geopolitical changes that no one is paying attention to or quite understands, especially in our leadership. And That's the scary thing.
0: Yeah I, I I will go you one further I I do think that uh we will be seeing maybe um depression uh if you could tell us when your book is coming out and the yeah. best places to to follow you. I know you're on Twitter and the website. The links will be in the description. Yeah. Uh, anything else we need to know about? Yeah, so
1: I mean, really, I'm really trying to build up my Twitter presence. I've been told I don't have a big enough one. So I'm trying to do that at Uh And then, and by the way, I named that well before Joe Biden ever ran for office. You know, let's go, Brandon. So I like to say they're all cheering for me. Uh, but, uh, you know, uh, so there's that. And then the book itself, The Shadow War is set to come out Probably we're aiming for near the midterm elections this year, so probably October or September of this year. And you can get it basically any online retailer um, now that COVID is you know finally over. Supposedly, uh, you know they're going to try to do more of a physical brick and mortar presence than we had with Winning Space, my first book. But any online retailer uh, certainly try to support your local uh, book retailer as well. I'm a big fan of that. But uh, Amazon, Target, Walmart—that's oh, where they'll be also. Online, um, and uh, it's called "The Shadow War: Iran's Quest for Supremacy." And it's really, um, it's not your usual. A lot of books are very neocon on on Iran. I'm a hawk on Iran. I'm definitely not a dove. But it's from a geopolitical perspective, and it also looks at something that I I think a lot of people don't look at, which is Iranian technology. We tend to make fun of it, but the Iranians are actually. As well as as the North Koreans, they're actually making critical strides in really some key areas that could be a real threat to the United States military operating in the region. Um, There's nothing like, as Taylor Dinnerman said in 2005, there's nothing like for a country like Iran to have a bomb in the basement and a satellite in the attic. And so, you know, I talk about stuff like that. I build off the chapter that that one chapter on Iran and winning space. I really build off of that. Um, and so I, I I hope your readers all get it, and I'll have to get you a signed copy uh, as soon as they're printed. we're we We're still waiting on the cover art, so we're still in that sort of pre-production phase.
0: Yeah, just to comment on going for local bookstores, I totally agree here. I, I just can't believe it here. In, in Mexico, where I am, I see Amazon boxes all over the yeah. place. Everyone here is like Amazon has expanded its, its yeah. presence. Like they're all, everywhere, and, and Mexico now. Everyone's like number one places. They're just buying on Amazon online yeah, and getting it. Also shipped. because of
1: COVID. That's also yeah. because of COVID and the deliveries and all that. But yeah, we got to get back. If COVID's over, we got to get back to the to the brick and mortar.
0: Yeah. All right, everyone, do follow Brandon on Twitter. Uh, check you. out his website. Uh, check out Winning Space if you haven't seen it, and wait for the new book. I think in half a year it'll be out. And so, thanks for being back on GNE. Thank you. I hope you enjoyed this geopolitics and empire podcast. The website is geopoliticsandempire.com, and I encourage you to sign up for the free email list that goes out with each podcast and every weekend with a collection of news headlines. The newsletter and website are our last lines of defense. We're being censored and deplatformed. It's nearly impossible to find Geopolitics and Empire on the Google search engine. We've been blacklisted. YouTube frequently takes down our videos with strikes. Facebook restricts our page. Reddit and Twitter take down posts. And after the Associated Press mentioned geopolitics and empire in a 2021 article co-written with NATO, our Patreon account was terminated. Vimeo also terminated our pro account. The best free way to help geopolitics and empire is to leave a review on Apple Podcasts or elsewhere and subscribe to all of our media channels. You can find the video broadcast now on five platforms. Odyssey, Rockfin, Rumble, BitChute and Brighteon. You can find the audio broadcast on the podcast ecosystem, SoundCloud, Apple, Spotify, and so on. My current favorite social media channels are Twitter and Telegram, but you can also find us on Gab, MeWe, Minds, Float, VK, Instagram, Facebook, and LinkedIn. Finally, Geopolitics and Empire is in dire need of funding to continue. You can leave a donation, purchase a consultation with the host, or become a member to receive additional benefits. We also produce a weekly broadcast called Dissident Thinker for members and Rockfin subscribers only. We will continue to fight the good fight come hell or high water. Thank you for listening.